0: Well, I'd like to invite you, if you would, to open up a Bible. Maybe you brought one with you or there's some uh, Bibles in the chairs in front of you or maybe you want to open up the app on your phone or however it is. If you like to read God's Word, you could open it up to Judges chapter 4. If you're using these black Bibles in the chairs, uh, they were on page 203. And I'd encourage you to open one uh, because we're going to through a, a big story this morning. And so not every word is going to be up on the screen. So please open a Bible and you can follow along together with us. I should introduce myself. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian and this is my wife Lori here sitting on the front row. Uh, we've been around Mount Hope uh, for a long time but many of you we have not met, which is great, uh, because that means more and more people are coming into the community here at Mount Hope. Uh, We pastor Mount Hope's Belmont campus, which is coming up on five years this September, which is pretty amazing to think about. It's great. Yeah, and God's doing... God's doing some great things there, and so while we're gathered here this morning, there's about 150 more people down in Belmont uh, that are in Judges 4 and, and worshiping God, part of the same mission here at Mount Hope, and that is a good thing, but it's great to see everybody and great to come back and to worship with you. This year, this year is an Olympic year. I don't know if you thought much about that, but this summer the Olympic Games will be in Tokyo. And let me just ask you a question. How many of you, how many of you get excited about the Olympics? How many of you are, the Olympics are, are your thing, all right? A few, a few people, largely surprising an anti-Olympics crowd, it seems like, in the room, but that's all right. It's all right. Uh, the world gets excited for the Olympics. You may not know this, but the Olympics are a big deal. And so one of the things I like about the Olympics, one of the things I enjoy about the Olympics uh, every four years is usually some unlikely hero emerges from the Olympics, right? Whether that's a bobsled team from Jamaica or, or something like that, like an, un, an unlikely hero or an unlikely story emerges from the Olympics. That's one of my favorite parts uh, about them. In fact, I was thinking back to a story that, that um, when, I, when I Googled it, I thought it happened four years ago or eight years ago. It actually happened 20 years ago in Sydney, Australia. Australia, it was one of those moments where I was like, ooh, I'm getting old. I remember this clearly 20 years ago. Uh, But a man named Eric Musambani was from Equatorial Guinea, still is from Equatorial Guinea, and he qualified for the Sydney Olympics in the 100-meter freestyle swim. And Eric, uh, he qualified through this wildcard program where they encourage developing nations to participate in the Olympic Games. He got to his heat in the 100-meter freestyle, and he stood up on his, his podium there. I should platform. I don't, I'm not a swimmer. I don't know what that's called, but you know what I'm talking about. The launch pad, let's call it. And he was, standing up, he was standing up there, and he only had two other people in his heat with him. Now, what the crowd didn't know, and even the spectators on TV didn't know in this early heat in the 100-meter. Or freestyle is it was the first time that Eric had ever seen an Olympic pool. He had never swam in an actual pool like this before. All his training was done uh, in the lake or in a, in a river or wherever he was, he was training to try and get this wild card into the Olympics. And so he was standing there ready to jump into the pool when the two competitors next to him, ahead of the buzzer, both false started and were disqualified. So now there were 10 or so empty podiums and just Eric, the first time swimmer at the Olympic Games, standing on his platform and the buzzer sounded and he jumped in. And if you go back on YouTube and you watch the video, you can see the crowd is pretty indifferent. It's an early heat in this race. He's not one of the favorites. They're all waiting for Michael Phelps or whoever is to come. And and so no one's really paying attention, but when he starts swimming, his arms are flapping And his legs are flapping His head never goes down into the water He's just going side to side That's how I swim, I don't know about you So I can relate to him And he gets down 50 meters And he does uh, what, what I guess could be considered a flip turn And he pushes back and he comes back And as he's coming back the last 50 meters The crowd begins to realize what's happening And 17,000 people get up on their feet as this man is struggling to get back to the wall on the other side. In fact, the commentators begin to talk amongst themselves, if you watch the video, and they're not quite sure he's going to make it back to the wall. And he struggles, and the crowd is cheering, and everyone's shouting, and sure enough, with that last lunge, he grabs the side of the wall, and 17,000 people erupt, and he's smiling, and he becomes one of the heroes of the games. He did finish the race in one minute and 52 seconds. That is over a minute too long to qualify for the next round. So even though he won his heat because he was the only person competing... In the Olympic Games, uh, he couldn't move on because his time was so slow. But don't you love that unexpected hero? I love it when someone you never expect to, to rise up and do something great comes and does it. And so many of our stories in our culture that we love surround the unexpected hero, the unexpected deliverer you can look back across the last few years and there's any number of superhero movies that have set records at the box office that are around a story like this, where someone who lives a fairly normal life and their normal job and their normal clothing can at night or when trouble hits, put on some sort of suit and save the world. There's something about those stories that we like as a culture. We love the unexpected hero. And certainly our sports movies are around that as well. Uh, I can, if I start naming sports movies, you'll, you'll, realize how how old I'm getting, but Hoosiers, anyone, or Rudy, or any of those? I'm sure there's some newer ones that I'm completely unaware of, but a lot of our our sports movies are are around that same idea, that this unexpected hero rises up and takes control. As we get into Judges chapter 4 here, we are going to read a story that includes some very unexpected heroes, people that we don't see coming, People that rise up and play a key role in delivering God's people from their enemy. And we're going to learn something. We're going to learn something about what deliverance looks like in our lives as well. As we jump into Judges chapter 4, we immediately see the same cycle that if you've been with us over the last few weeks in Judges, we've seen every single week. The people of God are stuck in a downward spiral they are increasingly walking away from God. And when we get into these stories and judges, and I know Pastor Rick has told you this over the last few weeks if you've been here, these stories get dark quick and we can be overwhelmed and overcome by the amount of violence and and bad things that are happening in these stories. But let's keep in mind, these are stories that are happening when God's people are walking away from him, not when they're walking with him. So God in his mercy and his grace is working within the current context to accomplish his purposes even while the world and even while his people are going the other way. And every once in a while you have these moments where the people cry out and God steps in But the way in which it happens can be a little bit unsettling to us in our current context But let's not forget what the the context of the text is And this is what the cycle looks like Over and over again in this book And we'll continue on in the next couple of weeks The people of God, they disobey God They have maybe a period of peace Sometimes it's 7 years, sometimes it's 20 years, 40, even 80 years sometimes But after a time of peace and walking with God, they disobey Him And then that moves them into a period of discipline. We talked about that last week. If anyone remembers, we said, when you forget about God, sometimes we forget that there's consequences to forgetting about God, that God allows us to be disciplined in order to pull us back to him. And so disobedience leads to discipline, which leads to distress, which leads to a deliverer. And what we wanna see is we wanna see that leading people closer back to God. But what happens in this book over and over again is rather than move us in towards God, the people descend further Away from him. And if we look at this text as we move into really focusing on deliver, the deliverer section of this cycle and what that looks like, we can immediately see this cycle taking place. Take a look at verse 1 in chapter 4. This is what it says. We get to the disobedience section, it's right here, very plain and clear. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, that was the previous judge, died. And so we move into discipline. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. You got to remember these names. Jabin's the king of Canaan, that's Israel's enemy. Sisera is his commander of his army, who lived in Harosheth, High Goim. Then the people of Israel, here's the distress the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, that's Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So, when we find the people in Judges chapter 3, they are in complete distress and they are very aware of their need to be delivered. They're very aware of their need to be delivered. This Sisera, this military leader, we read in the text, we have this detail that the writer thinks is important to us, for us to have. And he says that Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. And I don't know exactly what the one-to-one comparison with our world would be, but it could be something like that he had a nuclear arsenal at his disposal. Because to have 900 chariots of iron in that day and age, he would have been the most powerful army, at least in that context. And so this was someone to be feared. Jabin, the king of of Canaan, and then his military leader, Sisera, were people to be feared. The Israelites, after 20 years of cruel oppression underneath them, they knew they were in distress, and they knew they needed to be delivered. The big question is, where is that delivering going to come from? I don't think it's unlike what our culture is going through today. Whether we are conscious of it or not, the way that we live in our culture says that we have a very clear awareness that we need to be delivered from something. I don't mean, I mean Christian, non-Christian, everybody. We are very aware that we need to be delivered from something. And it happens on an individual level. It happens on a corporate level. And I think in some ways it happens on an eternal level. But we are very aware we need to be delivered from something. When we look on an individual level and in our culture... At the struggles that people are having with marriage and the struggles that people are having just in as individuals finding purpose and meaning in life. A rising suicide rate, a rising rate of anxiety and depression and loneliness. We are more aware perhaps than we've been in a long time that there is a need for individuals to be delivered. And we don't have to go that far to turn on the daytime talk shows or to, to turn on uh, or to open up the books or to open up the newspaper. And we will find article after article and program after program promising to help people find some sort of deliverance from the individual struggles that are going on in their hearts and in their minds. We know we have a need to be delivered. And corporately too. Perhaps we're, we're more aware of ever before the things that affect all of us or different groups of people in our world that we need to be delivered from. And so, the conversations around cli- climate change, the conversations around groups that are oppressed, the conversations around inequalities that exist in our world, even the conversations that are going to exist over the next few months around an election, all happen with this thought and this mindset that corporately there are things we need to be delivered from. Here's the question Who are we going to trust for the delivering? Who's actually going to bring that about? Or what can actually bring that about in our lives? That's the big question. And the Israelites, they had this keen awareness that they needed to, to be delivered. And us in our culture today, we need to be delivered. We feel that as individuals. We feel it corporately. The question is, where are we going to look for it? Who's going to bring it? And in this story, the delivering, it comes from some pretty unexpected people. Look at verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. I wonder how that got its name. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak the son of Bonoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord... The God of Israel commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said... I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you were going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Let me just pause for a moment. Are you still with me? Do you know what's happening here in this story? Some of you you've, you've dozed off. So come back. Let's let's catch up, okay? Here's what's happening in this story. Deborah is the judge of Israel at the time, okay? So each cycle that we go through, God raises up a new judge to be the person who's in charge of his people. There's no king right now. Kings come later in Israel's history. So you think it's Saul, David, Solomon, those all come later. This is about 1300 BC, somewhere in there. And there's this period of judges that God raises up. We saw Ehud last week. We see Deborah this week. We'll go on to Gideon and Samson and, and look at those as well. And so Deborah uh, is in charge of the people. She settles the disputes. She, She sets the direction. And she has this commander uh, underneath her control and he's a a commander of an army and his name is Barak. And she says, Barak, didn't God tell you to go get 10,000 people and to go and to fight Sisera? You know, the guy with the the 900 chariots of iron, the guy that can't be defeated. Didn't God tell you to go down and take 10,000 people from two different tribes of Israel and to go and fight him? And Barak whose faith wavers in that moment, says basically, yes, but I'll tell you what, Deborah, I'll make you a deal. I'll go if you go. And she says, all right, I'll go. And so the two of them go together and they get all 10,000 men together so they can fight Sisera. Sisera. And now in verse 11, there's this important detail here. And, it's, and so stick with me. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hob- Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zamaneum which is near Kadesh. Now, you got to hang on. Heber, this is all you got to know about Heber right now. He is someone that's with the Canaanites. He is not for Israel. He's for the bad guys. So when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera, he got his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Haigoim up to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Higoim, And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. It's a big moment. Sisera heard 10,000 people, fairly untrained warriors were there. He got together his 900 chariots of iron, thought for sure they were going to kill him, and he got routed. He flees, and watch what happens to Sisera. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebert the Kenite. Remember Heber? He's for the bad guys. So now he's at Heber's tent, and his wife, Jael, is there. And he's thinking to himself, I'm safe. I'm with friends. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, verse 18, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber. Here you go. This is about to get real. This is the book of Judges here. Took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. Until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And then this is my favorite qualifier in the book of Judges. So, in case you were wondering, he died. (laughs) And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So she went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Here's the question. Who's the deliverer in this story? Who's the real deliverer in this story? We have three candidates, and all of them are fairly unlikely, to be quite honest with you. Deborah is judge over Israel, which, to be quite frank with you, is a little odd. This is the only woman judge mentioned in the book of Judges. It would be odd for a woman to be in such a position of authority in the ancient world. But here she is. And we should make the note she is the only judge that leads as a prophetess and with wisdom and out of knowledge with what God is saying. The other judges lead with brute force. They're all men. I don't know if there's something to be said there or not, but they lead with force. And so Deborah's the first one. Is she the deliverer? The one who's able to listen to God's voice? The prophetess who is able to go to Barak, who is the military might, and say to him, isn't this what God said to you? Or is it Barak? Is it the the leader of the military group? The one who had 10,000 fairly untrained soldiers up against 900 chariots of iron and leads them into a great victory? Is Barak the deliverer in this story? Or... Another important candidate here, if your Bible's like mine, my chapter four is titled Deborah and Barak. I think JL deserves a little, a little credit here in this story. She's the wife of someone who is for the Canaanites. And when Sisera, the military leader of the group that she is supposedly for, comes into her tent, she's actually the one who carries out full justice on him. So who's the deliverer? They're all unlikely candidates. In our world, we are asking ourselves the same question. Who is going to deliver us? From the broken relationships in our culture, rising anxiety, rising depression, rising loneliness, we feel it. And our whole culture feels it. This isn't a a Christian, non-Christian thing. The whole culture feels it. Who is going to deliver us as individuals? And who is going to deliver us corporately from the things that are happening in our world? Most of our world is not sure of the answer to that question. And so we are doing whatever we can think of right now. This is important, I think. We are doing whatever we can think of right now to try and find some deliverance from all of these things that are plaguing our culture and plaguing our society. And for some of you sitting in the room right now, you know about these things. These are very real. Because you're walking through it, your children are walking through it, you're involved with the coworkers who are walking through it, all of these things that are, that are plaguing us as individual, plaguing us as corpor- corporately, we are asking ourselves who is going to deliver us and we are doing the best we can in our own mindset, in our own power to come up with solutions for these problems. When you think about the individual stuff, the best thing that we can come up with right now is to continue to try to find things that help certain groups of people and then just allow them to do it no matter what. We will legalize anything that a certain group of people says makes them feel better for the day. I think that's a problem in our culture. And it's only going to continue to go further. We are going to look for deliverance in certain things. We're going to allow people to do them. We're going to find out they don't work. I'll get real specific, and, and if you want to talk to me about it later, we can talk. Uh, marijuana is going to work no better than alcohol in getting rid of these feelings long term. And if you look, we're going to just continue to go further. Two years ago, two years ago, uh, the New York Times published an article, how LSD saved one's woman's marriage. And the whole article is on a a woman who is married to a well-known novelist. Their marriage was starting to decay. So she started microdosing LSD and, and saved their marriage. She'll tell you. The next year, in 2018, they ran an article, Why and How Silicon Valley Gets High. And it talks about how all the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, the way that they get their best ideas and the way that they escape uh, the crushing demands of their work is to microdose hallucinogens or take mushrooms or LSD, and it gives them clarity of thought and allows them to create new inventions, new pathways. And just a couple of months ago, there was an article in the New York Times with thought leaders like Michael Pollan, who very openly will talk about how he microdoses LSD, and it helps him deal with just getting older. So we're already working on legalizing the next thing that's going to try to make us feel better. And all I'm asking you to do this morning is not for us to get into a giant argument over what should be legal and what shouldn't. I just want you to ask yourself the question. Because it's so easy for us who follow Jesus Christ to get caught up in the rhetoric of this and when we hear, oh, some people say this is helpful, for, for us to just get caught up and say, and say, well, then we should continue to go in that direction. But here's my question to you this morning. Do any of us for a second I mean, ultimately believe that that direction and that pathway is going to provide true deliverance for anybody. And corporately. The truth is, over the next few months, the conversation is incredibly important about who we elect and why. But we ought not to think that the right people in the right places are going to provide ultimate deliverance. Jeff Bezos pledged $10 billion this week to fight climate change. Probably the best thing he could do is stop delivering packages, but he's going to throw $10 billion at it to try and, to try and fix what he created. Do we think Jeff Bezos' $10 billion is really going to provide deliverance from what ails us the most? I mean, honestly. It's great that he's doing it. It's great that he's he's being generous. But is that going to provide the deliverance we need? It's an important thing to think about. The truth is, Deborah, Barak, and Jael are not the deliverers in this story. They're unexpected leaders. They do unexpected things, but they are not not the deliverers in this story. The deliverer in this story is found right in verse 23. After all of this happens, and Barak comes into the tent, and he sees Sisera dead there, the text says this. So on that day, God, Subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And here's what, here's what the, the writer of the text wants you to know and wants me to know. Here's what God wants you to know that God uses some pretty unexpected people to bring about some deliverance in this story. But ultimately, the deliverance that is needed by his people comes from him and from him alone. It comes from nowhere else. And we're going to see over and over again in the book of Judges how God uses people that are unexpected people. So Ehud last week was left-handed, and Deborah as a a female leader, and Jael as the wife of an enemy, and Barak as, as as the underdog in the fight, and then Gideon, who's from the least of the least tribes of Israel, and then Samson, who has his own sort of issues to deal with, we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. We're going to continue to see people who are extremely flawed people that God uses in greatly unexpected ways. And let me tell you something, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there. You may be flawed and you may think you've gone far away from God and you may think that you have disqualified yourself for service in God's kingdom. That is not true because of God's mercy and grace on your life. But ultimately in every single case, God is going to be the deliverer because you and I have a problem. You and I have a problem that goes far deeper than our anxiety, or our loneliness, or anything else that we are experiencing. It goes far deeper than our relationship problems. It goes far deeper than the things that are happening in and around this world. You and I, at the very core of our being, that brokenness, all of those things is symptoms of the sin problem that you and I have. And what we need if we are going to experience true deliverance are not things that are just going to help us deal with the symptoms of everything that we're hap- what is happening. We don't need more things that are going to take away all the symptoms of the, of the real problem. What we need is true deliverance from what affects us the most. And it's going to come from an unexpected place we would expect the answer to come from the smartest minds on this earth. We would expect the ultimate answer to come from our ability to create and our ability to to pursue new avenues of development. That's where we expect it to come from. But I can tell you that true deliverance comes from a very unexpected place. It comes through a man Born in a manger, in a town no one cared about, who is described as having nothing special about his appearance or his demeanor that anyone should revere him who lived a perfect life on this earth, died on the cross for your sin and my sin, rose from the grave so that you and I might have complete deliverance from that which ails us the most. And while our world is running around trying to figure out what the next great solution is to deliver us from our problems, Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately delivers us. Deliverance in your life, it may come from an unexpected place, but I'll tell you this it always comes from the Lord. Always. And if you're looking for it anywhere else or encouraging other people to look for it anywhere else, you are leading them astray. So here's my question for you What do you need delivering from this morning? Listen, for some of you, you walk in the room and you are, you are in the middle of it. For some of you, it's something that's happening that's physical. For some of you, it's a relationship issue. Your life with your children is not good. Your life with your parents is not good. Your life with your spouse is not going well. For some of you, you are dealing with this crippling anxiety and loneliness What do you need to be delivered from today? And let me ask you this. What are you putting your trust in for the deliverance this morning? You may realize that you're in distress. So did the Israelites. Realize that they were in distress. So you may realize you're in distress this morning. I may realize that I'm in distress this morning. But what am I going to cry out to? What are you going to cry out to for deliverance? I'll ask it this way. You want to know what you practically use for deliverance? Here's, I think, a helpful question. It helps me. Hopefully it helps you. When you're tired, burnt out, stressed out, at the end of your rope, what do you turn to for relief? When you're tired, stressed out, burnt out, the end of your rope, what do you turn to for relief? Somewhere in there is what you're trusting to deliver you out of those places. Is it Netflix? Social media? Is it food? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? Do you smoke something? What is it? That's what you're trusting for deliverance. That's what I'm trusting for deliverance. But all it does is mask the symptoms. If you turn to chapter 5 of this book, you're going to read a poetic account of the same story we just read. And do you know what the poem says over and over again? Deborah acted faithfully, but God did this. And Barak acted, acted courageously, but God did this. And Jael acted boldly, but God did this. And so as we trust all of these things that just mask the symptoms of a much greater problem, it is what we need to do is to turn in our distress and cry out to God and ask him to do the same thing for us that he he has done for his people for thousands of years to bring true deliverance in the midst of distress i'm gonna invite our worship team forward as we close this morning and i'd invite you uh would you just would you just be willing to stand with me and i'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and just think about this for a moment Would you even if even if I lost you twenty minutes ago, would you would you come back and just think about this with me? This world is not an easy place. The effect of sin and us running away from God has had a devastating impact the same way it did for the Israelites 3,000 years ago. They ran away from God, and they suffered the consequence. We have run away from God. All of us have sinned and run away from God, and we have suffered the effects. And the only one who can deliver us is God himself. But we run to all these substitute deliverers trying to find something that will set us free. And this morning is an opportunity to come before God and say, God, I am in distress. And maybe some of you would do this for the very first time in your life. You would come before God and you would say, God, I am in distress and I need to be delivered. Listen, if you've followed Jesus for a long time like I have, it is so easy to slip back into trusting other things to bring the deliverance only God can bring. So easy to say for a few years, Jesus is my deliverer and then to slip into other things. You gotta come back this morning. And seek deliverance only where it can be found. So this is our opportunity to come before God and say, God, I am in distress. And I need to be delivered. And I have looked all these other places. To be quite honest with you, between all these things that we use when we're stressed and tired, Between Netflix, social media, food, pornography, alcohol, I bet I've hit the whole room. All of us turn to those things to try to get some relief. But all they do is take away some symptoms without treating the disease. You need to be delivered. And God can do it. So in these moments, you and I have an opportunity to come. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I'm just going to invite you this morning to come and to kneel before the Lord. And to say once more, God, I am in distress in this area of my life. And I need you to do the work that only you can do. So God, would you come and deliver me? And you might use an unexpected place that I don't see coming. The jails in your life, the rocks in your life, the Deborah's in your life. God may use them. But at the end of the day, it's going to be God who does the work. So as we sing this final song, come. Spend time in God's presence. Kneel before him and cry out to him. This is our opportunity to ask him to bring the deliverance only he can bring. God, I confess to you this morning. There are areas in my life where I have trusted things other than you to bring about deliverance. God, would you forgive me? And in those places, in the midst of distress, I cry out to you and I ask you, God, would you come and do the work in my heart that only you can do? Would you be my all in all? Would you be the rescuer and the deliverer, the savior, the Lord of my life? God, come do your work among us.